Once we get you guys talking, there's no stopping you. If you want to, you could turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Over these last weeks, we've been looking at the book of James, uh, verse 1 through the following in chapter 1. We started with the fact that we all have troubles, then we saw we all have temptations, and then James kind of turned the quarter a little bit at the end of chapter 1, and he said that we need to begin to see ourselves as we really are. If we're going to change, if we're going to grow in God, we have to be honest enough to let God begin to deal with some stuff in us. Well, in chapter 2, James amps it up a little bit, and he moves from preaching to meddling. He starts to get involved in our lives on a regular basis, and he begins to tell us stuff that we need to be aware of and begin to think through. So James chapter 2, he begins to talk to us about how we actually relate to one another, how we actually deal with one another on a day-by-day basis. My father-in-law used to have a poem that he would regularly give that was one of his favorites. It said this, To dwell above with those we love, oh, that would be glory. To dwell below with those we know, well, that's another story. The implication is it's easy to say we love those who have gone on before us and we can't wait to meet them. But what about when you've got to live with real people with skin on, right in front of you on a day-by-day basis. So, James chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read together, if you would, if you'd follow along. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man, in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, may God add the blessings of His presence to the reading of His Word. Now, in three different occasions, in verse 1, 4, and 9, James references this word called partiality. 
The word partiality actually comes from two Greek words that are kind of stuffed together. In fact, they are a made-up word. And it literally means to receive by face. Now from that word, we get the idea not of favor so much, which is a good thing, but of favoritism. Which means to allow yourself to be influenced by a person's social status, by their prestige, by their power, or by their wealth. And it's where we might get the idea of judging a book by its cover. Looking outwardly and passing judgment quickly. And James espouses the idea that none of us is qualified to truly judge a person's heart. Which is where the deeper issues of life dwell. I recall a situation that uh, a brother was telling about on one time. And, and he talked about a time in which he was in a service that he was leading as the pastor, and God's presence came in such power that people were just amazingly impacted. You had people uh, dancing before the Lord. You had people speaking in tongues. You had people laying on the floor just amazed at the power of the presence of the Lord. And it was an exciting time for their church. But he noticed there was a commotion in the back corner, and he watched it for a while, and then he realized there were some people back there that he did not know who were mocking the worshipers of God. Inside, he was upset. He actually became angry, he says. He became grieved inside. And he thought, okay, I can't let this go on. This is doing dishonor to the presence of the Lord. i got to go deal with that. So after just a little bit of time, he made his way back. But can you imagine his horror and humiliation when he got to the back of the church in the corner where the commotion was happening, only to realize that all of those people who were making the commotions were deaf. And during the service, they had heard the good news of Jesus Christ for the very first time through their signer and had accepted Christ as the Lord and Savior. And when that happened for them, and they saw people dancing before the Lord because God had shown them His presence, they too wanted to do it, but they couldn't hear anything. So the best they could do was watch closely and try to mimic it, not mock it. And they couldn't make any sounds, at least intelligibly, so they began to shout out words that he thought was mocking the presence of the Lord, but the truth is, it was them worshiping God as best as they were able. We are so quick to judge and think we are right in our judgment. We do it in our marriages all the time. We judge our spouse's attitudes. We judge their intents. Even though the truth is we can't know what's truly going on in their heart or in their mind. James tells us that we have to come to grips with this truth that we are imperfect and our judgments are always faulty. So, let's look at this section. If you would, follow along in James chapter 1 if you have your Bibles with you. We're gonna, uh, James chapter 2, rather. We're going to actually follow right along. And he starts off with a principle that he has stated. It's in verse 1. My brethren, so he's talking to believers, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. That's the principle. The lesson that he gives is faith and favoritism are incompatible. Faith and favoritism are incompatible. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a story about a king, the first king of Israel. Who was the first king of Israel, by the way? Saul. And what do we know about Saul? Well, I'm sorry, what did, I just heard it over here. Tall. He was tall. It says he was head and shoulders above everybody else. What else do we know? One other thing about his physical person. 
good looking. They said he was better looking than anybody else in all of Israel. So here's this tall guy, and he's good looking, and he becomes the first king, and he's an abysmal failure. The kingdom was taken from him. And the prophet Samuel was sent to a family, and God says, out of this family, I'm going to select the next king of Israel. So all of these sons of Jesse are paraded in front of him, and he looks at them, and they're all tall, and they're all good looking, and he says, surely one of them. And then God says to Samuel, man judges by outward appearance, but God judges by the heart. We judge superficially at best, but God alone knows the heart. Now, isn't it true that there are times in your life, if you're honest, in which you have had instantaneous reactions or responses to people, even people you've never known, never met before, but you see them and immediately you have a reaction to them. You think about them in a certain way. Maybe they remind you of somebody who used to look like that. How, how many of you have ever judged somebody based upon the fact that they look like somebody who did that to you before? We all do it. It's called partiality. It's called judgmentalism. Not just judgment, but judgmentalism. The issue James is raising is that kind of perception, that kind of judgment is dangerous and it's destructive. And in verse 2, he then illustrates this principle for us. He says, if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings. Now, again, the setting is a church service just like this. And James tells us that through the door comes somebody who is first very wealthy and then somebody who is very poor. The wealthy person says that he has on a gold ring. Now, in the Greek, you don't see it in English so much, but in the Greek, it means that he is festooned with rings. In other words, in their day and age, your status was measured by your rings. So he didn't just have one gold ring. His fingers, were, his fingers were covered with rings. I mean, this is a guy who dressed like... Um, trying to think of a guy. Like Drake or Jay-Z. Right? Or for some of you older people, like Mr. T. I mean, this is a guy who comes in with necklaces hanging around his neck and he's got rings all... I, I, do you know that during their day and age, you could rent rings just to make yourself look better and higher than what you were? And that's what this guy did. He comes in and he's, every finger is covered, multiple rings. He's got necklaces on and it says he's dressed in fine apparel. I mean, this is the guy who's wearing the latest and the greatest of everything that everybody in the world thinks is important that makes him seem valuable. And then James says, at that same time, or very closely thereafter, there comes a man, in, a poor man, in filthy clothes. Which speaks of, not just tattered, but dirty. I, I don't know about you guys, um, I was raised on a small mom and pop farm. And do you know you can be a guy who works on a farm and not realize that the smell of the farm goes with you? Did you know that? Have you ever been in a place and you're like, what is that smell? And then you realize that they're so accustomed to it, they don't even notice it anymore. But they're tracking it in on their boots. 
That's the kind of thing that James is describing here. You've got this rich guy who's festooned with gold and fine apparel, and you've got this poor guy with manure all over his shoes. And he comes in to the church of God. Now, what do you do with these two people? And Matthew helps us a little bit here. Matthew tells us that in the synagogues, which were like the Jewish churches of the day, in the synagogues, they had what were called chief seats. Now, the synagogue was divided primarily into three or four sections depending upon how large and how well off it was. There was always the immediate section, like right here. That would be for the men and the boys. And then, if you were not a large, large church, in the back there'd be a screen, like right there about where Art is and where Bill is. There'd be a screen across the back, and behind the screen would be the woman, the girls. And the reason they did that is they didn't want any man to be tempted by looking at a woman while we're worshiping God and reading His Word. So they hid him behind screens. And then beyond that was an outer court area where the Gentiles who were interested in the things of God could come. But I said there were three or four sections because there really was always in every synagogue a fourth section. That fourth section was called the chief seats. This is where they put the lazy boys up front for the important people to come and to be waited upon. And Matthew tells us that when they would hold church, when they would have synagogue, everybody would be there first, and then the last ones through would be the Pharisees. And they would come with their high hats like a bishop, and they would come with their gowns and their jewelry on, and they would have trumpeters actually trumpeting them through the door, down and usher them to the front seats. No one had to wonder in their synagogues who were the important people. And that's the very picture that James picks up on. He says, that was the synagogues under the old way. But in the church of God, you're doing the same thing. You're recognizing people based upon how they dress, how they look, their wealth. And James makes it clear that when you do that, you're being evil. That's the word that he uses, evil. He says it in verse 4. All have, or have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the first lesson that James gives us is that faith and favoritism are incompatible. The second lesson he gives us is this. The one place where God wants there to be no discrimination of this sort is in the house of God. This needs to be a different kind of place. You can't judge people God doesn't allow us to judge people based upon their clothes or their jewelry, upon their skin color, upon their IQ, upon their salaries, upon their accomplishments, upon anything. God doesn't care if someone comes in with nice clothes or shoddy clothes, with a thick wallet or no wallet, whether you're an elder or whether you're a heathen, whether you're big or small, whether you're smart or dumb, whether you're perfumed or whether you smell like manure. God doesn't care. What God cares about is what's going on in the heart. And that's what James is after, is how we actually deal with people. And by the way, in our country of all countries, I think we need to hear this message. In our discussions about immigration, I think we need to hear this. That James says we need to begin to treat people as valuable to God, no matter who they are. I'm not saying that the country shouldn't have laws. That's not my issue. I'm not getting into that. I'm not getting into policy. I'm talking about our rhetoric, our words, and how we even refer to people. 
speak of them. Now, think about it from their perspective just a moment. In their culture, slaves were considered, and this is absolutely accurate, slaves were considered barely living tools. They were no better than a hammer or a shovel. That's how they considered slaves. Women were chattel. They were the property of their husbands. And Gentiles, Gentiles were the enemies to be hated and despised. Can you imagine what it was like in the early church to come into a church service where all of those groups are blended together? The people who thought they deserved the chief seats. The Gentiles who were to be hated and despised. Women who weren't even to be seen in public, let alone heard. And then, of course, we deal with the fact that we have slaves. Can you imagine what it would have been like for a slave master to come into a church service and be seated next to his slave who's worshiping God side by side with him? Or worse, the slave is maybe leading the service and preaching. Can you understand what it was like for a man to come into a church service in their culture and hear a woman stand up and give a word of prophecy? That would be kind of like the KKK festooned in robes sitting next to a black person during Reconstructionism. That's the kind of thing that James is confronting in the early church. Did you notice, by the way, go back to verse 1. Go back to verse 1. It's just amazing. Do you notice how James brings in the idea of God's glory? Right from the beginning. He talks about the Lord of glory. Why? Because if God is in the house, who has any room for boasting? Who has any room for pride when God is present? Who has any room for thinking that they're more important than anybody else when the God of all gods is here? That's what James is alluding to. And you, you could say, well, that was something during James' days, but we do the same thing today. Just let a celebrity, a movie star, become a Christian, and pretty soon they're making the circuit of all of the news stations and all the churches telling about their testimony. Why? Because they were a movie star. As if somehow that gives them greater weight than any other person. We do the same thing in America. Now, I've said to you before, and I'll say it again, I'll say it until the day I'm gone. I don't know what you give in the offering. And I don't want you to come up and tell me. I've had people do that on Sundays. I've said that, and I've had people come and say, well, I'm going to tell you, so you can't say that anymore. I don't remember what anybody gives. I don't remember what I give. We set our budget ahead of time, and we just write our checks, and we give our checks as part of our expression of worship and commitment. But I don't know, and I don't want to know. And you know why I don't want to know? Because if I find out that... Let's just pick somebody. Laurel. If I find out that Laurel is putting $10,000 a week in the offering, I might be tempted when I see her to smile just a little bit bigger. I might be tempted to give her more time than I would anybody else because after all, $10,000 is a good hit for the church. I'm human enough to know that if I started measuring people by that standard, I could begin to show partiality or discrimination. Our problem is that when the rich and the famous or the important even come through the doors of the church, it's easy to feel like you ought to pander to them. Like you ought to ask their opinion about things. Because after all, 
they're important, unlike everybody else. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that God doesn't love the rich and the wealthy, the smart. That doesn't mean that at all. But James is not excluding them. He's just saying, why do you pander to them? Why do you give them more room than anybody else? God loves and accepts all people, so all people ought to be treated as God would have us treat them. The Lord doesn't see your money or your lack of money as a plus or a minus. He looks at your heart. What is inside of here? What's going on here? The one place in all the earth that God does not want discrimination is right here in the household of God. That all people, no matter what your standing, no matter what your financial situation, no matter what your personal grooming, all people are loved and accepted and valued in the house of God. The Bible is clear. Whether you're a long hair or a no hair, whether you're a blue collar or whether you're a white collar, all are accepted and loved by God. No favoritism. Leviticus 19.15 says this. And it's interesting how it words it, by the way. You shall do no injustice in judgment. He's saying, basically, there are times when we have to pass judgment. We have to make decisions. We have to show discernment. But you shall do no injustice in it. How is the injustice defined? He goes on. You shall not be partial to the poor. And I think sometimes we can be that. We can show favoritism to the poor because we don't like the rich. Because after all, they got rich off of my dollar. They took from me. And so we show discrimination against the rich. But you can equally be discriminatory against the poor. You can say, well, yeah, they're that way because they're lazy, no goods. He says, be very careful about thinking you know their heart. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the rich. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Proverbs 22.2 The rich and the poor both have this in common. The Lord is maker of them all. I, I, I want to say to you that we in America have been very, very guilty of this for generations. Of showing partiality. Of discriminating against people. Do you realize it was the church in America that actually endorsed and propagated the idea of white superiority? based upon the sin of Cain. A whole teaching went through the church that affected society that said, when Cain sinned, God put a mark upon him. That mark was he became a black man. Therefore, black people are considered less than white people, white superiority. Do you know that the KKK was formed among white southern Christian gentlemen? And that went on in the church. Do you realize it was the church that propagated the idea that women should not vote because they should be in submission to their husband and they're not worthy of voting? I think the church has come far. And I think our nation has come far. But is it possible God might still want to confront some stuff in us where we have some prejudices that God wants us to see challenged? Do you know we would not be worshiping the way we are here today? Hands raised, singing to the Lord, if it were not for some of our black brothers and sisters in Christ, it was at a place called Azusa at the turn of the century, 1903 4, in that range, that a man by the name of William Seymour, who was a black brother who was a poor farmer, but he had encountered God, began to hold meetings. 
and a revival called the Pentecostal Revival spread across the nation that is still the largest, fastest growing group within the world. The thing that was amazing though is that though God poured out His Spirit upon them, and there were gifts that began to be manifest in the church, prophecy, tongues, healings, all that began to be manifest, the thing that was reported was none of that. This is from a newspaper report of that day. The color line was washed away in the blood. Whites and blacks and Hispanics worshiping God together because they knew no discrimination. James gives us some powerful reasons for why discrimination is wrong. And I just want to give them to you really quickly. Uh, The first one is a theological reason. He says, it's not consistent with God's methods. If you read the Word of God, in fact, he says in James 2.5, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? If you look at how God did things throughout time, God presented the truth, but it was the poor who received it readily. It was the poor who recognized their need. It wasn't because He was excluding the rich, but the rich can be tempted to trust in themselves. Trust in their own wherewithal. Trust in their own minds. The poor recognize we're needy. I have to tell you, once you've recognized how needy you truly are and God's grace to you, it's hard to pass judgment upon anyone else because you see yourself as the least among these. Romans 2.11 says, there shall be no partiality with God. Abraham Lincoln said, God must love the common people because He made a lot of them. That's us. I won't read the Scripture, but you can mark it down. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. God says, I didn't call many wise, many mighty, or many noble. I called the poor of this world. So if you look at God's method again and again, it majors on the fact that the poor gladly receive. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said? Blessed are the poor in the Beatitudes. When John the Baptist was in jail and he was wondering whether Jesus really was the Messiah because things weren't going the way he thought they would, Jesus sent back a message and the first part of his message says this, tell John the poor have good news preached to them. That was a sign of the kingdom of God that there wasn't discrimination, that the poor were being ministered to. In fact, if you think about it, it was the poor who gladly received the message of the kingdom, whereas the rich young ruler went away sad because he had a whole lot. that He was trusting in himself. What James is saying is that we're not excluding the rich, but why is it that you're neglecting the fact that all throughout time, God's method is to present the good news, and it's the poor who have received it. So the first was a theological reason. The second reason is a logical reason, which is that prejudice ignores the current reality. He says in verse 6, Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you're called? In other words, he says, you're pandering to the rich, but the rich are the ones who are taking you and dragging you into the Colosseum for the lions to eat you. Why would you give special honor and recognition to them? And again, he's not somehow attacking the rich. He's merely saying, why are you pandering to them? Why are you giving them special dispensation somehow? And then finally, the third reason is a biblical reason, which is prejudice is inconsistent with the Scripture. 
And he gives the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I think what he's doing is he's anticipating or maybe repeating even what has been said. There are people who are saying, well, yeah, but James, the Bible says we should love our neighbor as ourselves, so I'm just loving the rich man. And James is saying to them, no, you don't really love them. Because if you love your neighbor, you would love the poor as much as you love the rich. The truth is you don't even love the rich. You just pander hoping you're going to gain an advantage. You're nicer to them because they have some power over you. And then he says, love is the royal law. And he basically picks up where Jesus leaves off. Jesus, remember, Jesus would say again and again, you have heard it said that you shall love your friends, your neighbors, your family, but hate your enemies. But I say to you, you should love your enemies. He takes it to another level saying, you've missed the point if you just stick to the letter of the law. The spirit of the law is we're to love everyone. And James is calling for a royal law in the house of God that doesn't just treat the people the same that doesn't just treat people as you'd want to be treated, but treats people as God would treat them. How have you been treating the people around you lately? Back in the early 70s, which is about when I came to Christ, there was a church in Massachusetts, I believe it was an Episcopal church, um, and it was at a time period when, uh, some of you guys might even remember this, some strange people began to come to church. They were called hippies you got to understand that at that time, that was weird. Because all these people were like people who had checked out of society. They dressed weirdly. And these people began to show up in church. Well, this was a very formal church in Massachusetts. And all of a sudden, hippies began to come to church. And it came to a head one Sunday. They were in the middle of a song, singing a hymn to God, when this hippie walked in. He had on jeans that were tattered. T-shirts that had holes all through it. He had a cigarette in his mouth. And he had long hair. And he comes in and he's looking for a place to sit. And as he's going down the road, no one will even make eye contact with him. It's a true story. No one would even look at him. No one would move over. And so he keeps making his way down and he gets closer and closer to the front. Finally, he gets to the front. No one would give him a seat. And so he plops down on the floor. And the church is horrified. I mean, they're full of people who are dressed in suits and dresses and hats and they look nice and they're well-to-do. And here's this hippie sitting on the floor right in front of the pastor. And the pastor's thinking, I don't even know for sure what I should do because no one's going to listen to a word I'm saying. There's too much concentrated on him. When suddenly in the back of the church, this elderly deacon in a three-piece suit stood up and he began to make his way down. And different members of the church later on testified, we felt really bad for the hippie because we knew what was going to happen. We, we couldn't blame this poor old guy. I mean, he'd been raised in a church all of his life where everybody dressed in a certain way and acted a certain way. You didn't come to church and sit on the floor. You sat in a chair. You came early and you dressed nicely. You didn't come in smoking a cigarette or a marijuana or whatever it was at the time. You dressed appropriately for church. So he makes his way down with his cane, hobbling as he goes, all the way down front. And the whole time, people are thinking, well, you can't really blame him. He's really going to lay into him. He gets up next to this hippie who is sitting in the middle of the floor, right about where my stand is. He gets there, and to their shock, he drops his cane and slowly makes his way to the floor and sits there, turns and looks at the hippie, puts his hand on his knee and smiles at him. 
The pastor says that was the day our church became the church. When we realized we were proud, haughty, arrogant people who didn't know how to love. And God wanted us to love all people. That's what James is talking about. He's saying it's time for us to love. John tells us if you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, you're a liar and the truth of God is not in you. Paul tells us in Philippians, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Think more highly of others than yourself. Is that a regular part of your life? Do you regularly, when you look at people, think they're better than me? They're worthy of honor even more than me. And then James gives us, to end it, just a couple of cures. He calls them the law of liberty and the life of mercy. The law of liberty very simply is this. There's not a one of you in this room, if you are honest, that hasn't lived your life wondering if there wasn't something wrong with you. That you have lived your life feeling unloved and unlovable. Unacceptable. Like there's something not quite right with you. You just don't quite fit in. You're full of fears and insecurities. And Jesus came on the scene and He saved you. He forgave your sins and He set you free and He's setting you free from your fears and insecurities. He's let you know that you're loved. That's the law of liberty. Because the law of liberty means now because you're being set free, you can set others free. You can look at others who feel the same way inside, even though they might not act that way. The truth is, because they're human, they feel that way. And you can help to be a freeing agent in their life. That's part of the cure, is to actually love people and to help set them free. And then secondly, James says, if you want to receive mercy, you need to give it. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Later on, he says, judge not lest you be judged. With the judgment that you judge out, it will be meted back to you. I'm not saying we don't have discernment. I'm not saying we don't have thoughts and views and opinions. I'm saying when it comes to people, not ideologies, not policies, but to people, can we actually show mercy? Because we desperately need mercy. He who would find mercy must himself be merciful. A life of mercy. A life of accepting people. Of receiving people. A brother uh, I read about once was telling about a time in which he was a guest speaker at a conference. So this is a fairly big to-do if you're going to be a guest speaker at a conference. And when he got up to preach, he noticed that on the front row was a man sitting and the man kept falling asleep. He said it was distracting enough that he thought about confronting the man publicly, challenging him, saying, what kind of man of God are you that you would sit on the front row and then fall asleep? But every day during the conference, that man would sit there and that man would fall asleep during the message. At the end of the week, he was greeting people as was his custom. And a woman came up to him and said, uh, Pastor, I'd ask that you would uh, maybe come with me and pray for my husband. And he said, well, what, what's the matter? Well, my husband has cancer and he's very, very ill and he's on medication. But he loves God desperately. 
And the medication makes him fall asleep all the time. So I, I beg him, don't come to church because it's awkward because you sleep through it. But he desperately wants to come. And even for this conference, I told him, why would you pay and come when you're going to sleep through it? He said, I would rather just be in a place where I could have the Word of God soak into me in my sleep than stay at home in my bed. And suddenly, this man realized the man he'd been judging all week long was there out of desperate need and love for God. How often do we make snap judgments without knowing what's going on in the heart? God says, that's not my way. I see the heart. James ends and says this. So speak, speak. When you speak, speak this way. And so do. When you act, act this way. As those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Because you've been set free, are you setting other people free? And for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs. If you know no other Bible verse, know that verse. Mercy triumphs. Mercy wins every time over judgment. I don't know where I got it, but I love this saying, so I'm going to give it to you in ending. It says, let the Scripture be our standard, let love be our law, and let mercy be our message. Let me say it again. Let Scripture be our standard. Not American politics, not NATO, not the UN. Let Scripture be our standard. Let love be our law. Because you have been loved. You have been loved by an unbelievably amazing God who pursued you until you found Him. Can you love? Let love be our law and let mercy be our message. The world already feels bad enough. It doesn't need to hear more bad news. The way you start in talking with people is not by saying to them you're a sinner and you're on your way to hell. You start by talking to them about the love of God that has been given from before the foundations of the world. A life sacrificed for all of us. And that God loves them every bit as much as He loves you. Would you stand with me? Again, just like last week, I want to end with this question. Having heard the Word of God today, we read the Word. What are you going to do about it in your life? How does this translate into action? How does faith work for you? Would you just take a moment, bow your heads, and allow God, by His Spirit, just to prompt you. Don't worry about anybody else around you. Don't be thinking about how your neighbor needed to hear this because you saw them do that. or Say that. Let's just worry about ourselves. Is it possible that you've bought into the American way of life more than the kingdom. Because Jesus said, if you're not willing to leave all of that behind, you're not worthy of the kingdom. And the kingdom's way is the way of love and mercy. Receiving people as valuable, as honorable, it doesn't matter 
whether they have a police record or a Purple Heart. It doesn't matter whether they've spent time in seminary or they've spent time in the cemetery. It doesn't matter whether they're rich or poor. Do you see people the way God sees them? Love people the way God loves them. Are you quick to make snap judgments when you see people based upon how they look? Or maybe how they speak? So because their vocabulary isn't very good, in your mind at least, they need English help. You're quick to write them off because if you can't even talk well, why should I listen to you? Based upon the Word of God, mercy always wins out. What would God have you do to put into action His words? I said at the beginning, James is beginning to meddle in our lives. This is kind of where rubber meets the road. Do you find yourself only hanging with certain kinds of people? People you're comfortable with, people like you. And avoid those others, you know, those people. Just take a moment, and if necessary and appropriate, do some business with God and say, God, I repent. I see that I sometimes am like that. I easily pass judgment on people. People coming to the church for help. Well, if they got a job, they wouldn't need help. Father, even as I was reading this morning, I was struck afresh by the wonder of your word. We thank you, God, for the living word of God, our Savior, that's able to go deep into our hearts, to penetrate into the hard places, and to give us a mirror of our own lives, whereby we can come back to you not with a sense of fear or trepidation, but with a clear sense of needing desperately fresh mercy. And Lord, I'm asking you to change how we see ourselves, how we see one another, even how we see you. Change how we think and speak about people and situations. And that we would pursue all people with the love and mercy of God. Work deeply in our hearts, I pray. Until it be said of us here at Family Life Church, there was a point in time in which that church became the church. Because they loved so deeply. a people of his presence, 
his power, his purpose, but also a people of love. Let that be the testimony of Family Life Church and all who gather here, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Have a great rest of your day. God bless you.